1274, after a three-year trip with his father and uncle, a young Marco Polo arrived in China. He was warmly welcomed by the venerable Yuan Dynasty Emperor Kublai Khan. So pleased, in fact, was the Emperor to make acquaintances with the Polos that he refused to let them go home and had them stay and get involved in local politics. Marco travelled extensively throughout China, writing beaming accounts of how well the Khan was keeping on top of things. In Suzhou, a city inland from Shanghai, he noted the rhubarb and ginger, the accomplished traders and most skillful craftsmen, and the 6,000 stone bridges. Then, with a, now let us quit Suzhou, he was gone. Off towards Hangzhou, which he really liked. When Marco did eventually leave China, it was in a convoy of 600 people. The journey took two years and only 18 people survived. And it still sounds more appealing than the crap you go through at the airports. Suzhou vies with Hangzhou for the title of Venice of the East. It's the canals which inspire the comparison, especially the respective Grand Canals. But unlike Venice's Grand Canal, the beautiful 3.8-kilometre lazy waterway of romance and gondoliers, China's Grand Canal stretches 1,794 kilometres south from Beijing and takes in both Suzhou and Hangzhou. Here, at the southern end of this epic waterway, where it hasn't yet dried out, it's still a commercial channel, with barges motoring along weighed down with raw materials. Grand, China style, is an adjective based on scale, scale alone. Jess and I joined the school on a trip to Suzhou's Silk Museum. It was raining, and the kids were excitable on the bus ride. Now I remember school trips to boring museums as a child, and the only reason that these kids were excited must have been because they hadn't been told where they were going. In the 27th century BC, the Yellow Emperor's wife, Lei Zhu, was enjoying a cup of tea in the garden. She noticed silkworms snacking on mulberry leaves and spinning cocoons. Maybe it was the wind, maybe it was gravity, maybe it was Lei Tzu herself, but a cocoon fell into her tea, and the heat made it unwrapped to show the fine strands of silk we all know and love. When her husband returned on his chariot, pulled by dragons and an elephant, after a day spent taming beasts, playing suju, which is ancient Chinese football, and making great ancient discoveries, Lei Tzu convinced him to let her cultivate the silkworms. As she did this, she managed to invent the silk loom, and taught the people of ancient China the secrets of silk. Now I won't blame you for raising an eyebrow over the plausibility of this story, but what is true is that silk was invented in China, and long, long ago. The Chinese were using silk as long ago as the 4th century BC, and it wasn't revealed to the rest of the world until the Silk Road was opened some 300 years later. That's a long time to keep a secret as fine as silk. The ancient Romans actually called China Serica, which is where the word sericulture comes from, which is the cultivation of silkworms. Although it's thought that the name China also appeared during this time, coming from the first imperial emperor, Qin Shi Huang. The theories of how we come to call China China are debated still. Anyway, so prized were the secrets of silk that the 6th century Byzantine Emperor Justinian commissioned a couple of daredevil monks to go to China and smuggle silkworm eggs out. This meant that Byzantium had a silk monopoly in Europe for hundreds of years, until the Second Crusade when silk weavers were kidnapped and taken back to Western Europe. Who'd have thought that silk would have led to such capers? We dashed across the parking lot into the Silk Museum. 
As the kids were collecting themselves and preparing for being herded through the museum, Jess and I ushered ourselves to the front and set off. The museum was deliciously quiet, a rarity at Chinese tourist hotspots. Model workers sat around looms and spinning wheels, looking serene with their plastic moulded faces and loose, functional attire. Real silkworms were sitting on mulberry leaves, waiting to grow up. There's a Tang-era poem by Li Xiangying which reads, And the silkworms of spring will weave until they die, and the candle will weep until it burns away. These melancholy lines are commonly used to represent the life of, who else? The teacher. And the noble sacrifice in pursuit of something beautiful. Education. How much weaving is left in me, I wondered. In a factory part of the museum, female workers were extracting the silk from the cocoons. It was one of those moments where real life and make-believe meet, for this was a real job, with real products being made. Elsewhere, women were stretching silk to make batting, which is the word used for duvet insulation, so I'm told, and a modern mechanical loom was creating beautifully intricate textiles full of Chinese characters. Suzhou is famous for silk. If the canals are the arteries of Suzhou, then silk is in its blood. It wasn't where silk was first developed, but it became known for great quality and the royalty had their garments made here, made by peasants for whom, until the rule of the Qing in 1644, such fineries were prohibited. The museum attendant was keen to aim us towards the place where we could spend money. We were surprised when the cute gift shop selling fans which my grandmother would like, and which Jess hated, backed out into what appeared to be a fully-fledged shopping centre. It was like looking out across Marks and Spencers, just perhaps more colourful. There were silk scarves, silk bedding, the tight, traditional Chinese dresses called qipao, and more. I parted with some renminbi to purchase a silk tie for my dad. Before leaving, Jess and I escaped the herd and saw a little of Suzhou city. In 1759, the emperor sought to boast about Suzhou's wealth and asked Xu Yang to paint a scroll which is now called Prosperous Suzhou. It is a lengthy visual tome which represents many places under Suzhou's jurisdiction, even brushing up against Changshu. It's full of merchants and traders, mountains and courtyards, weddings, canals, punting theatre and lots of money. If the scroll was updated now, it would have to include countless e-bikes, a skyscraper which looks like a pair of huge trousers, and high-speed rail. But apart from that, much of the scroll could remain the same. A limit on building too high keeps the old city's identity firmly intact. The canals, the gardens, the traders, the old pale houses. In a rapidly changing country, Suzhou is timeless. Back at the school, all-girl art class was going swimmingly. At the beginning of each class, we'd talk about the weather and one student would play piano to the rest of us. Summer, at nine years old, could play Beethoven and would soon perform to the entire school. As for how I was performing, who knows? Feedback was not forthcoming, but something new was on the calendar to address this hitherto glitch. We foreign teachers were to attend one another's classes, get tips and give feedback. We were able to prepare for this class by practicing the content with the kids and sternly telling them to be well behaved during this special class. Having seven foreign teachers sit at the back of my class and judge me was not something I relished, but even professionally it seemed like a bad idea. What practical advice could we glean from a class which has been rehearsed many times and plays out like a performance? I accosted Jane, the manager in the hallway, and made a suggestion. 
How about each foreign teacher sits in on everyone else's class, unannounced, individually? It is an idea, she said, accurately. It took a little longer for me to understand that one shouldn't offer advice to their superiors in China, even when they are being asked. Thank you for your idea, said Jane. The observation classes were predictably unnatural. You've never seen such angels in a classroom. From the observing teachers, there were some useful comments and some less useful comments. Phil, your accent is wrong for English, from Kelly, was one. We didn't get any feedback from the management, despite their sitting in the room, watching like hawks and making copious notes. In lieu of useful feedback from colleagues and management, I would talk to the parents about their anxieties and expectations and use this for guidance. On one occasion, I was given a thousand RMB gift voucher from Angela's dad, which I suppose was feedback in a sense. He wanted me to pay extra attention to his daughter. He had extremely high hopes for her, and she was as bright as a button. But she had a slight stutter. I'm no speech therapist, but I promised to encourage her any way I could. It's a bad Chinese habit, said the dad, referring not to the stutter, but to the thousand RMB voucher he pushed into my pocket. I'd never been bribed before, I thought to myself with some satisfaction. But I told him that there might be a limit to what we teachers could do for her. I suggested speech therapy, but Angela's dad looked hesitant, telling me that he thinks the stutter is just a bad habit, stemming from the high pressure that she's been under to study ever since she was young. Still sounds like an issue for an expert to tackle, I said. But for Angela's dad, that meant going to hospital, and going to hospital meant getting sick. That's what he said. Back in the day, communist China implemented cradle-to-grave welfare. Mao may have got a lot of things wrong, but health wasn't really one of them. China's People's Daily noted that life expectancy in Guangdong in 1949, the year the communists took power, was a pitiful 31 years. The World Bank's earliest data put life expectancy in China in 1960 at 43 years. It was 76 in 2015, albeit with large disparities across the country. Of course, coming from such a low base, one could hardly fail. But the speediest rise was during the tumultuous 1960s, so something must have been working. Mao's communists implemented broad public health campaigns to improve hygiene, including the mistaken Sparrow campaign mentioned in episode 3, Pumped and Deflated, with sparrows, along with flies, rats and mosquitoes, being the four pests. He also institutionalised a scheme known as the Barefoot Doctors, who, incidentally, wore shoes. Their basic training provided universal coverage in people's communes, with an emphasis on prevention before cure. One obvious result of the importance of hygiene is the many well-signposted public toilets in cities. There's actually a law in China designating the number of flies that can legally be in a public toilet. It's two, meaning there is an incalculable number of fugitive flies on the run in this country. On the wall next to the urinals you often find a Neil Armstrong-inspired sign saying one small step for a man, one big step for a civilization," encouraging men to inch forward and not pee on the floor. Still, the great outdoors is the preference for many. Perhaps the general condition of the toilet is keeping them away, which I can understand. The squatter toilets often look like an Edvard Munch painting and often produce a response not unlike that of the screaming homunculus. 
Mao died in 1976 at the ripe age of 82, bucking the average life expectancy for that year by a healthy 18 years. All those long-lived Chairman Mao posters must have had a positive benefit on our ageing dictator. The posters continued after Mao's death, urging the people to turn grief into strength and continue the revolution. But the people's communes and the barefoot doctors were gradually wound down. Health coverage, which reached maybe 90% in the late 70s, would drop to 45% in rural areas by the mid-80s. The new head honcho, Dong Xiaoping, speared economic reforms which led to much privatisation. Private companies don't have to worry about their employees' well-being in the same way that state-run companies previously did. As social security waned, an insurance-based system arose. Insurance systems are great in healthcare if you're healthy and wealthy and don't really need healthcare, but less good if you're poor and unwell and do need it. The adverse effect on the poor has led to new reforms needing to deal with this problem. But GlaxoSmithKline is wallowing in this massive market like the proverbial pig and shit. For a country which boasts a space programme, nuclear missiles, the third tallest thing in the world, and the fastest growing economy, health spending is shockingly low, albeit rising. The average Chinese citizen had $367 worth of healthcare to work with in 2013. A single Norwegian citizen had more spent on their health than 25 Chinese put together. In 2018, the figure rose to $501, and that same year the UK sent £71 million in aid to China. But aid from the West has come in increasingly small amounts. In 2021, the aid given to China was slashed by 95% as Britain reassessed its responsibilities to poor people overseas. I understand why people balk at British taxpayers' money being sent to China, which is not only wealthy, not only contemptuous of Western values, but far more likely to claim that the West is bullying them rather than helping them. But when all is said and done, China still has poverty. Hospitals are where China's status as a developing country is laid bare. Even in prosperous Chongshu, with the glistening German and Korean saloons sitting in the car park outside. Hospitals look more like train stations, with people spitting on the floor as they wait in queues to buy tickets for appointments. I hoped I wouldn't have to experience it firsthand. But I hoped wrong. Next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, it's December. It's cold. I talk about China's most popular social media app, WeChat, and the quite Orwellian social credit system that China's been rolling out, and more shenanigans in the school. <laughs>